Securities Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Allison Nathan, a senior strategist within Goldman Sachs Research. Today, we have a very special episode. Jake Seward, Goldman Sachs's global head of communications, has hosted this podcast since it started in 2015, and he'll be leaving Goldman Sachs in the coming weeks. I'll be hosting exchanges in the weeks ahead, but before Jake goes, we wanted to catch up with him to talk about his time here at Goldman Sachs, how corporate communications has changed since it started here in 2012, and some of his favorite memories from the podcast. Jake, I'm delighted to be able to interview you for a change on this program. Allison, it's a pleasure to be on the other side of the uh, microphone. Jake, you joined Goldman Sachs after the firm had emerged from the financial crisis. And one of the first things you did was to implement a more proactive communication strategy. What was the thinking behind that? Well, it's pretty simple. I mean, I think the firm has always had a very, very strong position with its clients and with its employees. And people who worked here and people who worked with the firm had very high regard for the firm. And yet there was this vast gulf between people who knew the firm really well and people who didn't know it at all and only knew about it from what they read in the newspaper. And the idea was just simply to bridge that gulf a little bit by giving people who hadn't spent any time thinking about Goldman Sachs, except what they read in the newspaper, a little bit of insight into what the clients saw and what the people who worked there saw. And, you know, I always say that the, probably the most powerful thing we could do for someone who's a little skeptical about what the firm is all about is to just walk them through the sky lobby and here at 200 West or the offices in Hong Kong or London or, or elsewhere and give them a little bit of a view of the firm. But it's, that's a little impractical. But through the podcast and the videos and other things, you can sort of take people inside virtually and give them a sense of what it's really like. And that really changes their perception of the firm. And so that's sort of been the strategies from the beginning is to open up the firm, make it a little bit less of a secret temple and give people some insight into what we all feel like working here every day. And so it's a simple strategy. I remember talking to an old friend of mine when I started who used to work here. And he said to work at Goldman in that period of time was to experience a daily cognitive dissonance between being really happy working when you're at work and working with great people and working with great clients and then walking outside the firm where people had this very, very different view of what you were doing every day. And the idea is to try to sort of eliminate some of the dissonance between what it's like to actually be here and work at the firm and what the public perception is of that reality. Prior to joining the firm, you had several positions in the Clinton administration, including serving as White House press secretary. What were some of the biggest similarities, if any, between working in government and a financial services firm such as Goldman Sachs? Well, there's nothing quite like working at the White House in the sense that it's an intense pressure cooker. And I was privileged to work there when I was pretty young and had a lot of stamina. Uh, (laughs) But Goldman is pretty close within the corporate sector in terms of the glare that it gets from the media and outside forces of all sorts who take a look at the firm. And it gets a lot of scrutiny, probably more scrutiny sometimes than it deserves and probably more attention sometimes than it does relative to peers. But they're similar in that sense in that they are places where 
you fundamentally don't have a choice but to deal with a lot of incoming from the media and outside interests. And the problem, I think, at a corporation, and Goldman fell into this, is that you feel like you have a choice. At the White House, you have to hold the press briefing. You have to answer questions. Whatever president it is gets a fair amount of exposure. Sometimes they take matters into their own hands, as President Trump did, and they mostly use Twitter to express themselves. More traditionally, presidents hold press conferences and spend time with the media, but no one ever thinks that there's a choice but to communicate regularly about what you're doing and provide a degree of transparency. And the question is just where to draw the line and how to do that. Corporations like Goldman that get a great deal of scrutiny but are publicly held feel sometimes when they have a really rough go that they can withdraw a little bit and that they have that option. But that almost always turns out to be a false choice. The world doesn't give up on you because you're not speaking. And Goldman went through a little period where there was very little speaking outside the firm, but that didn't ultimately kind of make things better. And so I think the trick here at Goldman was to sort of, as I said, match the perception to the reality of the firm. And that required taking a little risk. And, you know, just as in our businesses, if you don't take risk, you don't get any upside. It's true in the marketplace of reputation as well, that you need to take some risk and get out there and get beat up a little bit if you want to make forward progress. And that was sort of where we found ourselves at Goldman. But every politician, whether they're a congressman or congresswoman or, or someone working at the White House, understands that you don't have a choice. And I think the trick was to get Goldman to recognize that it didn't really have a choice either. Jake, you were White House press secretary. It's hard to find someone who has worked more closely with media in lots of different roles. You know, how has media changed over the course of your career? Well, I mean, the industry's obviously undergone a pretty dramatic transformation. And at one level, it's been a brutal business for the incumbents. On the other hand, there's an enormous amount of innovation in the space. And, you know, Places like Politico, which is now an institution, and Axios, which is pretty new, have sort of reinvented how media works. But the reality is it's a much noisier environment across the board, and journalists are much more independent than they used to be. You see that with Substack and the like. There isn't as much institutional loyalty amongst journalists, and the classic institutions have been a little bit resource-starved as the social media giants picked up more and more of their revenue. So it's a more complicated environment. You used to be able to work with a handful of media organizations, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Reuters, et cetera, and the broadcast folks, at least in the business space, were CNBC and Bloomberg. Now it's an incredibly dynamic and broader environment that you're dealing with. And at the same time, businesses like ours and many others have much more opportunity to tell their story directly through podcast videos, blogs, and the like. So it's a much more interesting and dynamic field in some ways than it was when I started in the White House in the early 90s, where, you know, it was very kind of classic and traditional. You dealt with a handful of media outlets and you told your story through the media, and that was really your only opportunity. At that time, what was revolutionary was talking to like a cable show. Clinton famously talked to Arsenio Hall and MTV, and that was considered revolutionary at the time. So it's more complicated. And I think if you're a consumer of all this, you have a lot more options to get information directly yourselves. Most people have smartphones now and they have access to information that in the 90s was only available to really a handful of people at news organizations and in the government and business. 
So everyone has a direct feed to everything the world has on offer. And the trick is to suss out where there are independent, disinterested, somewhat objective voices and finding and being able to trust certain voices is a really complicated dynamic today. And that's part of the reason why we've seen so much polarization on all kinds of issues, most notably in politics, but around business as well. So it makes a job like mine much more interesting and you have a lot more choices. And as a consumer of news and information, you face a staggering array of choices. And so it's a much more complicated dynamic world in which to manage a company's reputation or a politician's reputation. So, you know, I think it's going to evolve more and it's going to get even more complicated. So you talked about the motivation behind the more proactive communication strategy, but I mean, how did Goldman Sachs decide to get into podcasting? Well, it's interesting. I mean, we've had a podcast for, I don't even know how many years now, but the original impetus I alluded to earlier, if you could give people a glimpse of the conversation that Goldman has with its clients about their most pressing issues, then I think you really are giving people something really valuable. Right. So the idea and we started the first podcast was not to talk about the markets per se or not to talk about where the Dow or the S&P was going to be at the end of the year or the euro dollar rate, but was to take someone super interesting inside the firm. And it was one of your colleagues or former colleagues in research and talk about what was going on in the healthcare industry. Jamie Rubin. And the one great thing is Jamie talks to CEOs of biotech companies every day. She talked to investors every day. And so she's able to share the insights that she picked up from those conversations. And if you can replicate that over and over and over again, you're going to really find an interested audience. And one of the great things about podcasting is the audience sort of finds you. I mean, obviously, we spent some time getting people out there, but to share some of the insights that are happening in the past, maybe inside a boardroom or inside a conference room with a broader audience is hugely interesting for people who've watched the firm from afar. And I think what we've proven over time is that there's a real audience for people who may not wake up every day saying, I wonder what Goldman is up to, but are curious about the conversations that Goldman is having with its clients about topics that are important to them, whether that's healthcare, technology, what's happening in markets or something else. When exchanges at Goldman Sachs first started, podcasts are really just taking off, though. I mean, how has the role of podcast evolved as a communications vehicle for companies? When we first started taping the podcast, we would sit down in the studio at Goldman Sachs and it was almost like a one person operation. And now we actually have a whole team that puts it together. And as a result, it's a lot more professional and the team does a great job sourcing people around the firm to talk about really interesting issues. So, I mean, I'd be remiss Not to mention in the early days, Rich Latour, who's moved on, but helped develop this podcast with Liz Boyer, who's been involved from the beginning, and Lindsay McMillan, who's moved on to a new job at Goldman, which is a really cool job, and Sean Elms, who's been with us for a number of years and makes sure that we sound right and that it gets done. This always does it with a great deal of grace and humor, and Sam Grobart, Jane Kim, and the others who are running the podcast. It's become a real team effort. I think podcast is a great example of a long tail product, right? So that we're not aspiring to be mass market. And I don't think most companies really want to get mass market, but there are a lot of people out there interested in very, very particular issues. And the neat thing about Goldman is you can find an expert on almost everything. You can find someone 
because there are people who advise companies about all kinds of different things that are happening in the world. So if you want to find someone here who's understanding how technology is reshaping the agricultural industry, there's someone around here who does that because they're advising some big agriculture companies or advising technology companies that are specializing in that space. I used to work in the mining industry. We haven't really done a lot of mining podcasts, but there is a huge industry around the world and there are people who are super interested in that. So when other companies call us and say, hey, I noticed your podcast. Do you think there's room for us to do a podcast? I almost always say yes, because you know if you're a big business, whether you're BHP and mining or that might be a little bit obscure to many people. There are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who work in and around that industry. And believe me, the New York Times, the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, not covering that industry as closely as people in that industry would like. And so their options are to read a trade magazine or these days, typically a website or nothing else. Whereas now you can find pockets of interest and identify those in podcasts and find someone where someone's having an intelligent long-form conversation about something that you're super interested in. If you think back over the five plus years of doing that, do any episodes stand out? Well, I mean, certainly I've loved the exit interviews. Now I'm a subject of one, I may feel differently, but we did an interview with Gary Cohn right before he left and joined the Trump administration. And that was a lot of fun because Gary has a really, really fascinating and interesting story, and not many people know it. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a chapter of a book once about Gary. I sat in on the interview that Malcolm did with Gary, and it was just about Gary's childhood from the age of basically five to 22. Didn't even touch on the Goldman years, really. And I was captivated by that story. So I loved the idea of as Gary entered public life and more people were paying attention to him to talk to Gary about kind of his career and what he learned and how he overcame a pretty serious learning disability to be really successful. That one was super cool. And it gave Gary, I think, a good way of introducing himself to a bunch of people who didn't know him well. The other two that I thought were really, really interesting were when Harvey Schwartz and David Solomon got put in the positions of sort of competing for the CEO job. We also had to introduce them to the world and we did podcasts with Harvey and David. And so it was interesting, even though you know it was going to play out over years, that was sort of like a great way to introduce David and Harvey and their respective backgrounds to the world because they weren't well known outside the firm. But I'd say some of the really cool ones were people who are a little more obscure. I won't go through the whole list, but I love talking to Sean Legister, who's a youngish guy at the firm who's had a really cool career and started something called Breakfast Bites. And we talked about his parents coming from Jamaica and what it's like to uh, grow up in the firm as a successful Black professional and what he's learned here. And at the time of George Floyd, we interviewed Fred Baba, who also really cool, interesting story. He'd written a long piece for Bloomberg that ended up in Bloomberg about how he felt about the issues around racial inequity. And those conversations, which were intensely personal, were just really awesome. And I'll never forget them. Any favorite pieces of feedback that you received as host of the podcast? Well, when I announced that I was leaving, I got a lot of nice emails from people around the firm and outside the firm. And as I said, we started the podcast as a way to sort of give people outside the firm an introduction to the firm and a way to understand what the firm does every day, a sort of indirect way to understand it. What I 
didn't really appreciate, and some of the mail that came in has made me fully appreciate, is how important it was for the people who were on the podcast. And a lot of them who maybe did one podcast episode or maybe a couple wrote to me and says that it was a transformative moment for them because they'd been keeping their head down, doing their job, working with clients. And this was a chance for them to sort of step up and kind of introduce themselves to the world and talk to a broader audience about what they do every day. And so I think I underestimated how much it mattered to some of the people in the firm to be a guest on the podcast and have that opportunity to reflect on what they do every day and talk about what they do every day. And so I spoke to Bentley DeBuyer and a couple other folks inside the firm. Bentley runs what we call HCM. Most people call it HR, human resources. He runs people at the firm. And I said, what we're really underestimating at some level is how important things like the daily check-in that Liz Boyer hosts and the podcast that you're now going to host is for the people who participate in it. Finally, I want to ask if you could think back to yourself uh, in 2012, uh, when you first joined Goldman Sachs, what advice would you give to your younger self? I mean, it's kind of the classic advice that when you see an opportunity to change something, run at even faster and just don't let anything really slow you down. I mean, I, I got very conflicting advice when I joined Goldman about how to change things. And one was, there's a consensus organization. It's important to get consensus. Very important to like socialize everything. And unless you socialize things, you won't get traction. And the other people said, if you see something that you know needs to change, just go out and do it and take some risk. And I think I did a little bit of both, but I think the places where, whether I did some, obviously a lot of consultation and there was a great team working on some of the issues that we were able to launch. And I mentioned Liz and Amanda Rubin were here and had a lot of good ideas. I think moving faster on some of this stuff and being more ambitious about some of the changes, I probably would have done more of that early on because the reality is in some of this stuff, there just isn't a consensus. Some of this stuff is a little risky. And for Goldman, even though being we launched social media too, at the time, Goldman hadn't really been on social media. And Amanda and Lisa Shallot were really critical in helping us get out on social media. It's like they knew how to do it. We just hadn't done it yet. It wasn't that risky, but inside the firm, it felt super risky and dangerous out there because social media is a little messy and noisy and, and Goldman was in a difficult spot. And so moving faster and thinking big, you know, I think would have been something I'd pass on to my successor. Thanks for joining us today, Jake, and sharing your journey with us. I certainly have some big shoes to fill. Uh, we wish you all the best for the next chapter. Well, Allison, I'm very confident in your ability to do this. I mean, when I started at the firm, one of the first things I noticed was that top of mind was something that actually circulated outside the firm. And I think Goldman's always done a good job capturing the broader thematic issues in that product which you launched, which became a podcast as well, is kind of the best of Goldman. And so the podcast is in good hands. Thanks, Jake. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a comment. This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, April 28th, 2021. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording.
This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.